Thanks for tuning in to the Harvest Springs weekly podcast. Every week we'll provide you with the weekend message from our Sunday service. So uh, I, was, I was putting my slides together for, um, for the message today, and I, I pulled up my previous slide. Anytime I open the presentation software, it pulls up the, the last message that I worked on, and I noticed that it was the message for December 18th, 2022. And uh, I didn't even get a chance to build my slides for Christmas Eve because I was in the hospital. Um, and, uh, and then since then, I had got a, the joy of having another uh, uh, an, a surgery and uh, was in the hospital for a few days. Many of you have asked, well, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Uh, sometimes I'm tempted to go, I don't know, feel me. You know, how do I feel? But uh, I just want you to know, I'm feeling really, really good. Um, I kind of feel almost completely back to normal. I had a major milestone this week. I was on the road and I was driving to Billings and I was noticing, you know what, I'm feeling pretty good. And I got to my hotel late that night. And as I was kind of getting ready for bed, all of a sudden, the thing that I've feared for the last month now, the sneeze was coming. Those of you who know, I had, I had a, a section of my intestinal tract removed and, and all the cuts and stuff. And so anytime a sneeze would come, you don't realize how violent those things are until you have one. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, no, oh, no. You know, so I'm grabbing, kind of preparing myself, and I sneezed, and it, it really didn't hurt. I didn't, I didn't cry for like uh, 30 minutes afterwards. And I was like, man, I am making progress and then I sneezed again this morning, and it was like nothing ever happened. It was like a normal sneeze, and I'm like, oh, praise the Lord. I am, I am done with this. So just so you know, uh, I, I'm doing really well, thankful for the grace of the Lord. It just, To be honest with you, it feels like the recovery was so much easier than it should have been, and, uh, and I'm really, really thankful for that. Okay, uh, today we are starting a message series entitled House of Prayer. You might have noticed that Right out of our, our, uh, our worship, if you've been here for a while, we kind of, we did something just a little different right there. We kind of prayed, kind of. And this is one of those things that over the last probably year, I have been wrestling with. A passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus has just come into Jerusalem. The triumphal entry has just happened. They just hailed him as the Messiah. And almost immediately he goes from kind of being on the donkey right to the temple. And he gets to the temple, right? This is the place where kind of the, the religious leaders are to help facilitate people connecting with God, right? This is the place of kind of worship and connection with Yahweh. And he gets there and he finds a religious system that is nothing like his vision for the, for the temple. And the zeal of the Lord comes upon him. He starts tipping over tables. We know the story, right? Starts tipping over tables. He kicks people out of the church. And what is his rebuke to them? To these religious leaders of the day. What is his rebuke? Anybody know? My house shall be a what? House of prayer. See, there's a little hint right up there on the screens for you. My house shall be a house of prayer. Now, here's the deal. 
for the last several months, I've been wrestling with this because, well, to be honest with you, Jesus doesn't say my house shall be a house of singing. He doesn't say my house shall be a house of worship. He doesn't say my house shall be a house of preaching or teaching or small groups or outreach. Now, I am not saying, please hear me, I am not saying any of those things are bad or that God doesn't desire those things. But I think Jesus was very precise with his language. Now, he is quoting from an Old Testament passage, right? But that Old Testament passage also was not ambiguous in its wording. It uses the word prayer. My house shall be a house of prayer. And to be quite honest with you, as I, I, I sit, I, I serve as a superintendent over, over 30 plus churches. Uh, I've, been, I've been visiting churches all over the place, connecting. It seems as if very, very few churches actually understand or reflect what I would say would be a house of prayer. As a church, we've, been, we've gotten plenty of compliments. People tell, oh, I love how you guys do outreach in the community. I love your services. Oh, I love, you know, the music. I love the teaching. I love all this. I love, 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 love. I have never once heard anyone say, you know what I love about Harvest Springs? You guys pray. And that bothers me. Over the last several months, I've been trying to wrap my heart around this. Because ultimately what that would suggest is that as a church, we've embraced a different vision than what Christ has for his church. My house should be a house of prayer. Man, that's got to sit in our soul a little bit. That's got to, well, let me put, put it this way. I've got a little tension at my house. My wife and I, we find ourselves in tension almost every day. It almost is always about the exact same thing. Whether the bed should be made or not. To be quite honest with you, I I wrote this little section of my message out and then I read it to Tasha to make sure I had approval to bring this to you all. Because this is a little glimpse into our marriage, into the tense uh, conversations that sometimes we have. And after the first service, my wife, uh, uh, she just got here and she's downstairs serving in one of the kids' classrooms. She said, I didn't even hear the message yet, but I've already had people coming up to me saying, hey, Tosh, I'm with you. (laughs) So I'm just going to read you what I I wrote here. So I've mentioned this before, right? That there's, there's tension in this arena about making the bed. Now, Tasha has an expectation that at all times, our beds will be made perfectly. She expects that if someone's not in the bed, that the bed would be made with all the edges of the blankets perfectly balanced on both sides. No wrinkles should exist in the said said blankets or sheets. And the pillows 
must be arranged in a way as to exhibit decorative excellence. It should look like that. It's not just the bed. Okay? She also expects that every dish in the house should be washed, dried, put away in the exact location that she has determined for its existence. I don't get to say where dishes go. Tosh determines the existence of our bowls and plates. She also expects that the silverware be sorted in the drawer, stacked perfectly according to size, shape, and style. No dish in our house shall be left unwashed if we're leaving the house for longer than 10 minutes. She expects that the refrigerator contents be organized by size, use, and expiration date. The counters may not hold any appliance or machine. How many of you guys are with on that? You can't have an appliance or a machine on the counter. It has to be somewhere else. Uh, only things on the counter shall be things that are decorative and festive. No laundry shall be undone in the house. It shall all be folded, put away. It shall be in a closet or a drawer, folded neatly or organized tidily at all times. The floor shall be vacuumed at least once a day. It shall be also mopped at least every other day. And the decorative pillows shall always be neatly placed on the couches and chairs with a throw blankets neatly folded and draped perfectly up on the backs of the couch. The one section of the couch that gets smushed down by our dog when she takes her afternoon nap must be fluffed up regularly and the place where our two couches join together must not exceed 1.25 inches or else it needs to be adjusted. I left out quite a few rules in the house. Now the problem is I don't quite have the same vision that Tasha has for the house. Now I'm not a slob. If Tasha was in the service, she'd probably stand up and say, I object. But actually, I'm pretty good at keeping the house. I really am. I just don't have the same vision for the house as Tasha does. You see, I personally don't see the need for making the bed. In fact, this is my vision for how the bed... In fact, I'll be honest with you, that's how I left the bed this morning. I sent, uh, I sent a text to Tasha and said, hey, take a picture of the bed. And then if you want, you can take a picture of the made bed and we'll figure it out. So this is how I normally leave it. And the picture before is how it ends up after Tasha's done with it. Now, I don't see the point making the bed because I plan on getting right back into it in just a few hours, right? And 99.9% .9 of the time, nobody's coming over to our house to look at our bed. And so it just seems like a waste of time for me. So we don't have the same vision and thus often the tension. I am just fine leaving dishes in the sink and then going to work. Figuring that at some point during the day, like probably after dinner, we'll do the dishes and we'll clean things up. But I'm fine leaving them undone. I'm okay if we mix different spoons you know, in the, in the Civil War drawer. I feel no anxiety at all if the toaster's left on the counter or the mixer's left out. Doesn't bother me. 
I would throw all of our throw pillows in the dumpster. I don't see any need for a blanket draped on a couch. I don't even notice the smushed down place where my dog takes her nap. And when it comes to refrigerated items, as long as it... I don't know what happened. But, yeah. All right, let's keep going. You might not have anything on the screens then, um, so get your Bible out. (laughs) But I don't feel any anxiety or struggle at all putting anything that fits on the shelf in the refrigerator just in the fridge. As long as it fits, it's good. And when I do laundry, I'm okay. You know, jeans, shirts, uh, undies, socks, white things, all being in the same load. That's fine with me. doesn't bother me. Tasha might have an aneurysm when she hears this in the third service. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but here's what I'm trying to help you understand. You probably feel this tension in your home as well. There's oftentimes differing, if you're married, right? There's a differing vision of how things should be. And I've never uh, encountered a married couple that has the exact same vision for their home. There's always tension there. Now, inside of my home, there's still quite a bit of debate about which vision should win out. Should Tasha's vision win or should Corey's vision win? Which one is the best vision? Right? There's quite a bit of debate about this in my home. But let me be very clear. In God's house, there should be no debate about whose vision wins. That's where you might go, amen. Doesn't sound like you were quite convinced. Listen, God should be able to win the vision tension inside of his church. When God says, my house shall be a house of prayer, This is not like an idea that we should kind of wrap our minds around and consider. This is something for us to be. This is is really not something to kind of try to work in to the framework of our church. This is something for us to wrestle with. How do we be a house of prayer? Because why? Because this is God's vision for his house and it can't be ours. Are we on board with this? So we've got to figure this out. We must learn how to be a house of prayer. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus would come out of the, you know, the triumphal entry, hailed as the Messiah, and the first thing he does is he goes into the temple and cleans house. He rebukes the religious leaders for creating this whole structure of religious, you know, activity, but it is completely opposite to the vision that he has for the temple. And so Jesus goes and rebukes that. In a lot of ways, I felt like over the last year, that's what God has been doing to me. Corey, you have not led Harvest Springs to be the house of prayer that is my vision for the church, my vision for the house. 
And so I've been wrestling for the last several months that tension. How do, how do we be a house of prayer? How do I, as, a, as an individual, as a follower of Christ, be a house of prayer? How does my family you know, exhibit and be a house of prayer? How do we as a staff be a house of prayer? And over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to wrestle with this. And I'll be straight up honest with you. I believe that this is, this is a vision series for the rest of the year. Because my prayer is at the end of 2023, that Harvest Springs will be a praying church. That it would be true of us, at least more true at the end of 2023 than it is today, that we would be a church that prays, that we would be a house of prayer. The temple was the most sacred of locations in Judaism. It was the place where the nation of Israel felt as if they could connect with God. And there was a reason why they would come and connect with God, is because God had set it up that way. The idea of a temple actually treks way back to uh, right out of the Exodus. So I'd encourage you, if you have your Bibles, I'm not sure if we're going to have any slides today the rest of the way. Maybe. Do we have anything? No. So, so if you don't, oh, never mind. We got slides. Put your Bibles away. No, no, no. Keep them out. Keep them out. Okay. So here's, here's the deal. Right out of the Exodus, the, the, the Israelites are brought out of Egypt. God supernaturally delivers them out from bondage. They then supernaturally escape from their hand through the Red Sea, uh, the hand of the Egyptians through the Red Sea. They find themselves in the wilderness at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain and he meets with God. The mountain of God, right? Moses goes there and meets, but the people are like, don't stay away. You, Moses can come up. He'll meet with me here. But then what's interesting is then Moses comes back down off the mountain. And then he said, it says in Exodus chapter 33, verses 7 through 10, I'll just read it for you. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp far off from the camp, and he called it, what does he call it? The tent of meeting. Now, when you call something the tent of blank, right, the, the following word is describing its purpose, right? It's describing what is happening there. So if, uh, if I want to go to... Uh, you know, get a sub sandwich. I could, you know, go to the shop of Jimmy John's, right? The, the shop of Subway, right? It gives us context into, well, Jimmy John's doesn't really give you context, but it's my favorite sub shop. So, you know, go there. But like you go to a, a bakery, right? It defines what it's all about, right? The tent of meeting Moses here is helping everyone understand that this tent is all about meeting. And what is it a meeting of? Well, let's find out. 
Verse 8, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his door, at his tent's door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud. Now, what is the pillar of cloud? Why is that important? Well, we have to understand that the pillar of cloud was the tangible presence of God. The pillar of cloud during the day would lead the Israelites through the Red Sea, right? Around in the wilderness. They knew where to go because the the visible presence of God was leading them. At night, it was a pillar of fire. And so when Moses, when they're camped, right? Moses would go out to the tent. And when he get to the tent, this pillar of cloud, which is the presence of God, would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. What was happening in the tent? It was a meeting. A meeting between Moses and God. Now here's the interesting thing. Moses is actually... An intercessor. A go-between. The, the, the word intercessor just means you're, you're, you're going between two parties. So if, if you and your you know, spouse are, are upset with one another and, you're, and you go to a, a counselor, right? That counselor becomes an intercessor. He's, he's coming between you to try, try to bring you together. So intercessors are all about facilitating the meeting of two parties. Moses was going to the tent. Why? He would meet with God, but ultimately what was he facilitating? He was facilitating a meeting between God and the people. So that starts out in this tiny little tent, right? We got a little picture here of, of maybe what that might have looked like. A tiny little tent Moses would have gone through and he'd put the door down and he'd go inside and then the pillar of uh, cloud would come down and everyone would know Moses is meeting with God. But up on Mount Sinai, what had God done? God had given Moses plans for a larger tent, right? Called the tabernacle. It also, throughout history, became known as the tent of meeting. It was a little bigger tent. We see a a, a picture of what that might have looked like. The next slide. There we go a little larger place. And inside of Exodus, if you're reading the book of Exodus, God lays out the plans for this. This is God's idea. This is not man's. God says, here's a larger tent, a tabernacle. And God lays out all of the ways for mankind then to come and connect with God. Different feasts, different offerings, different ways for you to kind of uh, atone for sinfulness, to remedy man's problems, right? You could come to the temple and it would facilitate an intersection between you and God. And ultimately, Moses wasn't the driver of this system. What was? The priests. So Moses then transfers kind of the, the intercessor role over to priests. And priests became the facilitators now of people connecting with God. Remember, everything that's happening in the temple or in the tabernacle is all about facilitating a connection between God and man. 
Now, this was the, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. This was the framework in which the Israelites lived through the, through the wilderness, through the conquest and uh, Joshua's leadership. And they possessed the land through the judges, uh, uh, all the way up to David's reign as king. When David was a king, he, he, he captures Jerusalem. Jerusalem becomes the capital of the nation of Israel. And at the capital, he's going to build himself you know, a palace for himself. But he also starts going, how can I have a house and God doesn't? How can I live in a, in a palace and God just lives in a tent? He starts feeling uncomfortable about this posture and says, I'm going to build a temple, a permanent house that's not like a tent. Now it's going to be a temple where people then can come and connect with God. Again, I've said this over and over and over, but the idea here is that the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the temple are all about facilitating what? A connection between man and God. So the tabernacle transitions to the temple. And the temple is built not by David, but by David's son, Solomon. And when it is built, the nation of Israel gathers together to dedicate it unto the Lord. And when Joe read that passage of scripture from 2 Chronicles chapter 6, that is the dedication of the temple. They hadn't even used it yet, but they are now going to dedicate it unto the Lord. Now, I want you to pay attention and we're going to read this passage, and it's actually, it's a lot of reading. And I know you can get lost in all the words. I really encourage you to grab your Bibles and take a look at it with me. There is so much here to see in this larger prayer. But here, the temple is going to now be dedicated unto the Lord. Solomon builds a little platform. He calls the nation together and says, let's dedicate this unto God. Now, when you dedicate something, you dedicate it for the purpose of what you're going to use it for. And as you read what Solomon prays, you will see clearly that Solomon has the same vision for the house of God as God does. Let's read in verse 12. Then Solomon stood before the ark or the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. And spread out his hands. Verse 13. Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high. And had set it in the court. And he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. And spread out his hands towards heaven. Here's what he said. O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all of their heart, who have, kept your, uh, who have kept with your servant, David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it to this day. So you promised you were going to build a temple through me and now it is a reality. You've kept your promise to my dad. Now jump to verse 18 and I want you to see that Solomon then says something kind of in a hypo, he asks a hypothetical question. He knows the answer here, but 
it's, it's significant for us to understand what he's actually saying. Verse 18. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. Solomon here isn't, you know, uh, asking a question he doesn't know the answer to. He knows the answer. He knows that it is, it is not even logical to think that God somehow could squeeze himself down and fit inside of this building. He said, even the, the highest of heavens can't contain you. So this idea of trying to build a house for God to live in is just kind of a weird one. What Solomon here is saying is God isn't homeless. He's not wandering around looking for a place to live or a a hotel to stay in while he's in town, right? He's, He's not in need. God doesn't need this temple. Who needs the temple? We do. We need a place to connect with God. We need a place that facilitates, you know, the brokenness that we're in that helps bring that back together. We need that place. The house, the temple, isn't for God. Even though we call it God's house, this is God's idea, and he, he gives it to us because he knows we need it. The house of God is a meeting place between God and man. Now, here's the deal. The reason why Jesus was so upset with what was going on in the temple wasn't because there were buying and selling going on there. It was because there was a religious system that was making it way more difficult for people to connect with God. And so instead of helping people connect with God, they were putting rules and regulations and boundaries and obstacles, and people would come to give their offering. They would come to connect with God, and the the religious leaders were making it like a hurdle. We'll talk more about this next week. But Jesus, when he sees it, he's like, no, no, no. What should be happening in this place? Connection between God and man. What is happening here? Rules, regulations, you know, all this stuff that's pushing people away from God, making it seem like God doesn't care, doesn't want to connect. Just like, that's not how it should be. My house shall be a house of prayer, a place where man connects with God. Now let's listen then to the next verse. After Solomon says this, you know, how do you fit inside of a a house? We know that this is not even possible. But verse 19, it says, Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. Now I want you to pay attention to all the places now in the next couple verses where Solomon talks about prayer, plea, asking, listen. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be opened and night, uh, open day and night towards this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place and listen to the pleas of your servant 
and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. And listen. Are you listening? And listen from heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Inside of those three verses, he says, have regard to my prayer and my plea. Listen to the cry and to the prayer of your people, your servant, that your eyes may be open, that you might be aware of our need. And you hear towards this house, listen to the prayer, listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people, listen from heaven and forgive. This same posture continues now for the next 20 verses. In the next 20 verses, Solomon lays out seven different arenas in which the people ultimately will find themselves in need and they can come to the temple and connect with God about it. Let's read. Verse 22. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then what's the the next words here? Just, Just read it out loud. Oh, you can't because they haven't gone to there. Verse 23, okay, what, what's the next words here? Then hear from heaven. Well, what would that suggest? That would suggest that mankind has come and prayed, has brought their need, has brought their request, has brought the, 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 the weakness that they find themselves in, and they cast it towards God. And they do so at the temple. Right? So hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct in his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. In verse 24, here's the second arena. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you and they turn and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, What's the next word? Verse 25. Say it together. Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you have given to them and to their fathers. Have you heard anything about preaching? Anything about songs, worship, any of that stuff yet? No. No, again, I'm not saying any of that stuff is bad. All that stuff ultimately should have at at its core the effort to connect us with God, right? Because why? Because the temple is all about meeting. It's a tent of meeting, a tabernacle of meeting, a temple of meeting, a church of meeting. Verse 26. When heaven is shut up, And there's no rain because they have sinned against you. If they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, when you've afflicted them, verse 27, what's the next words? When I say that now, you're not going to need the screen. You should just know. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sins of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk. Now here's, here's an interesting, this is the first place right here where it actually talks about the teaching part. We come to God with this posture of need, but then what does God's Spirit also graciously do for us? Instructs us in the right way to go. 
right? That's, this is now the teaching of the word, showing us the right pathway, pointing us in the right direction so that we can live the way God wants us to. Verse 28, if there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sicknesses there is, whatever prayer plea is made by any man or uh, um, by, any, by all of your people, Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his own hand towards this house. Verse 30. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose hearts you know, according to all of his ways for you, you only know the hearts of the children of mankind that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days that they live in the land that you gave to your fathers. Notice all of the difficulties that are listed there. Pestilence and sickness and hardship and oppression and being having enemies against you. What can we do? We can pray. We can bring those to the Lord. Verse 32 Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and he prays towards this house, what do we want God to do for them? Hear from heaven. Now this is interesting because these would have been Gentiles. These would have been Gentile people. These aren't the Jewish people. These are people who are outside of the nation. These are people who... Maybe crossed over illegally. This is probably, you know, I'm just being honest here. We've got to be cautious a little bit about our attitude towards the foreigner in our world. Sometimes we should be praying that they experience the same kind of blessings and the same kind of, you know, goodness from the hand of the Lord that we get to experience. That's exactly what Solomon here says. When the foreigner comes and he comes and prays towards the temple, and he calls on the name of Yahweh to respond to his need, we are asking that you will show up in their life just like we're asking you to show up in our life. That's, that's something I'm working on, how to pray in my own life. Sometimes, right, we, we're like illegal immigration. They cross illegally. What about this? You know, it's their culture, right? Oh, you protect. Ah, you. And I, want, I don't want to get political here, but we just have to, this, I mean, this is the word. We can't fight against it. We got to let the word shape our hearts, not try to, right? We're not, it's not our vision. This is his vision. The word shapes us and teaches us. We got to surrender to it. How do we pray this for those who are foreigners in our world? Verse 34, if your people go out to battle against their enemies, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to you towards this city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, verse 35, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. And the last one, verse 36. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. We should all underline that. It should be highlighted in all of our Bibles just to keep us mindful of our need. There's no one who does not sin. And you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near. 
Yet if they turn their hearts in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all of their heart and with all of their soul in the land of their uh, captivity to which they were carried captive and pray towards their land, which you have given to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name. Verse 39, what's next? Then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayers and their pleas and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. It should challenge us that when Solomon is dedicating the temple and describes its function, what it's for, and the prayer in which we dedicate it to the Lord to fulfill that function, all of it is about us pleading with God in our time of need and in our weakness, in the places where we need God to intersect into our lives, and we are desperately begging God to hear from heaven over and over and over and over, to hear from heaven and to act to intersect into our world, to do something about our need. That's what the temple is supposed to be. A place where we come to God in our neediness. And we lay it at His feet and ask for Him to help. Now that's not all that prayer is. Ultimately, prayer is a dependence. It is a posture of dependence I was talking with Tasha this morning as I was driving this morning. The Lord was just, I was trying to pray and, and the Lord just was kind of, you know how the Lord gently rebukes you at times? And I was thinking we had just had a conversation with Tasha and I'm supposed to go on the road again this week and the snow was coming and you, you should just not go, Corey. And uh, this little differing visions of how we should operate. I look at it, well, it's Montana. We drive with snow. It's not that big a deal. We just get over it. Right? I'll drive slower. I'll be careful. You know, you just, I got four-wheel drive in my truck. We'll just we get there. That's how it works. Tasha, she's like, if it was me, I'd never leave. <laughs> you know, snow on the ground. Oh, sorry, I got to cancel. Bad roads. Differing visions, right? Now there's this tension. And the Lord goes, you know what? This is how you operate. This is how Tasha operates. Neither is great. So for me, my way of handling things is, well, I'll just figure out a way. Do I have to leave a little earlier? I could go a different route. I can make it so that I could figure out a way to get there and still get my thing done. I haven't prayed about it. I didn't take it to the Lord and say, God, what do you want me to do with this? Right? I just trusted my own wisdom to figure it out. On the same side, Tasha, in kind of this, you know, concern and fear, and she doesn't want me to, you know, to, to be in danger and nothing risky ever. And so she just canceled. But did she pray about it either? No. Neither of us, me and my self-sufficiency and her and her anxiety, neither of us have ultimately prayed about it. And both are just as unhealthy as the other. What do we ultimately have to be? People who recognize our dependence. We need God 
to give us guidance. We need God to give us wisdom in things in ways that we don't know how. We need God to show up when the roads are dangerous, right? We need God to show up even when they're not. We must live in a posture of dependence because it's in our independence that oftentimes we get prayerless. One of the reasons why the Lord's been challenging me, one of the reasons why you don't pray more, Corey, is because you don't think you need me that much. You pretty much think you've got this figured out. You've got the pathway forward. You know the plans. You know all the, the ways to work. You can figure this out on your own. So you don't talk to me about things. You don't come to me. You know where I talk to God a lot? That week before Christmas when I was in the hospital? Man, I talked to God quite a bit about my plight there. I found myself, you know, in the hallway of the ER, and I was kind of stuck there for a day or so, and there were people all around me who were sick. There was nothing I could do to help them. People in tremendous pain, people who are grieving, people who are, are struggling. I'm laying in a bed, desperately wanting to help, and I can't. You know the only thing I could do? Spray. When I recognized the limitations that I have and the need that existed around me, you know what it sparked in me? Prayer. We'll talk more about this next week. But we have to develop and cultivate a posture of dependence. You notice if you read through that passage in, in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 6, one more time, if you just read through it maybe later today, you will see over and over and over. Solomon, recognizing that the people are going to find themselves in positions they can't handle without God's help. Seven different places. If we look at it, the first place is this. If we find ourselves, we've, we've hurt our neighbor. We've gotten a conflict with a, a friend or a, a neighbor, a co-worker, and we can't fix it. What happens when you're in a conflict and now you can't resolve it and it's outside? You've done everything you can and there's no way to make it right. Well, guess what? Solomon goes, you know what we do? We go to the temple. We go to the house of prayer. We take it to God. God will help us when we're in conflict and we don't know how to resolve it. God will help us when we have enemies that are coming after us and they're saying unjust things. God will judge the, the righteous and the wicked. We'll just bring it to God. We can rest in him knowing that we have met with him in prayer. The second thing is if we're defeated by an enemy because we've forsaken the land. When we as a people have not been righteous, when we've embraced ungodly atrocities, well, what do we do? This is not necessarily such a personal prayer request. This is a little bit more of like a prayer that we come on behalf of our, our country. What happens if we recognize that there is ungodly things happening and our country is just fully embracing it? Have you watched the Grammys? Or the Super Bowl show? Or basically any TV at all? The kind of things that we just absolutely welcome into our world? Should we not then be going before our God and saying, God, 
We grieve. This is, an, this is ungodly. This is, un, this is unrighteous. We know it breaks your heart. Forgive us, heal us, restore us, bring righteousness upon the land. Number three, when there is drought, when we don't have everything we need. Right? Have you ever tried to buy eggs lately? Seems like there's a drought in chickens. Food shortage. We don't have what we need. What do we do? We need provision. We don't have the resource to pay the bills that we, we have. We have concern that you know this is going to be more than, than my family can endure. How do we handle being in a po- posture of poverty? We pray. We come to God. We share our need. We ask Him to provide. That's what the people of God do. We pray. Number four, when there is famine in the land, pestilence in the land, sickness in the land, COVID, affliction, hardship. I've just, I've heard, I mean, so many different places, you know, COVID, uh, the flu, different strains. The news has gotten out some, some new H151 strain that's now, oh, we got this, or with the, the Marburg virus, or all the stuff that, that, you know, man, all you have to do is watch the news, and there's a new sickness, or pestilence, or illness, or something that's going to afflict us, coming at us all day long. What do we do? You worry? You get anxious? Oh no, what do we trust in? Do we trust in, you know, the, the, the systems and structures around us, or do we come and pray? Suggest that Solomon expected that the people of God would come to the house of the Lord and pray. They'd bring their concerns and their anxieties about all this stuff that's happening, and they'd cast it before the Lord. It doesn't mean sickness doesn't happen. It means we trust God when it does happen. We hang on Him. Number five, when a foreigner comes to find a home among us, what do we do? We pray. We pray the same things for them as we pray for ourselves. Number six, when enemies surround us and we're at war, what do we do when it feels like we can't overcome and we're going to be taken out? We pray. And number seven, Number seven, if you go back to verse 36, it starts with this. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. When we sin against God and we need restoration, we need healing, we need forgiveness, what do we do? We come to God. We come to God. Guys, the house of the Lord, from the beginning vision of it, from God up on the mountaintop to Moses, and from Moses to a tiny little tent outside of the camp, to a tabernacle, to a temple, to Jesus, to the church. We are to have a posture of prayer. This is God's vision for the church. And no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing, 
no matter what anxiety or fear or struggle or hardship that you're going through, you could go through all those seven things. You could point all of it right back to a need. No matter what your need is, you can bring it to God here. That's what it means to be a house of prayer. That you can meet with God here. And like it says in 1 Peter, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Remember, the house of meeting, this house of prayer is not our idea. This is God's idea. And it's not because God needed it. It's because we needed it. So with every head bowed and eye closed, I just want you to take some time to connect with God. If you have need, bring it to Him. Maybe you have a conflict in a relationship and you don't know what to do, share it with God today. Pray. Maybe you feel like you have enemies that are against you. It's people that don't like you. You're fearful of what that might lead to. I encourage you, bring it to the Lord today. Maybe you feel like there's a sickness or a hardship or an adversity that you're facing and you have no hand in it. Bring it to the Lord today. And maybe today, maybe you've recognized that you've sinned. You've allowed things into your life that unrighteous and unholy. And you need to make sure those things are reconciled, forgiven, and that your heart is restored and renewed and healed by His grace. Confess that sin to Him today. Don't hang on to it. And let Him forgive So, Father, we come to you as your people. We are trusting in your goodness. We hope and pray, Lord, that in the midst of it all, you would teach us how to be a people of prayer, to cast all our anxiety upon you. And when we gather in this place, we come to meet with you. And we pray, Lord, that you would hear and you would act, that you would judge, that you would redeem, that you would forgive. We pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, the one who makes it possible for us. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close? 
Thanks so much for listening to the Harvest Springs podcast. Our hope is that you hear the truth of God's word and that you are encouraged and challenged by it. If you would like to take your faith journey to the next level, check out the Getting Started plan on our mobile app or our website, harvestsprings.com. The Getting Started plan is a seven-day video-based teaching that will help you start your relationship with Jesus off in the right direction. And if there's anything that we can do to help, just fill out a connection card on our website or on the mobile app.